Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Kelsey Bowler. Today, we're going to discuss backlash against dinner plates that supposedly fat shame women and moms, a controversy surrounding a Canadian transgender woman who wants his genitals waxed, social justice warrior fallout over Ivanka Trump's new family dog, and finally, Kelsey sits down with Heritage Foundation's research fellow and mother of six, Rachel Gressler, to talk whether there's a conservative case for paid family leave. And of course, crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week here on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. Those of you whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on iTunes and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. Let's get to it. Macy's this week pulled some controversial plates that, according to some social media users, encouraged fat shaming and eating disorders. The plates in question have different size circles painted on them that read mom jeans for the largest circle, indicating it's the largest portion of food you would put on your plate, and skinny jeans, which indicates the smallest portion. There's a middle-sized circle that reads favorite jeans, which is apparently your perfect fit. While these plates were pulled from the shelves of Macy's, they are still available on the company's website, Portion. Here's a sample of what some users said. These vile portion control plates carry a body-shaming message for all people, especially women in 2019. Absolutely atrocious and not funny at all. Portions just right should be downright ashamed of these products. Fat shaming contributes to countless suicides per year. And now, Portions Just Right is complicit in those deaths. Deplorable. After going viral, the plate designers defended themselves on Instagram, saying, as the creators of Portions, we feel badly if what was meant to be a lighthearted take on the important issue of portion control was hurtful to anyone. Portions is intended to support healthy eating and drinking. Everyone who has appreciated portions knows that it can be tough sometimes to be as mindful and moderate in our eating and drinking as we'd like, but that a gentle reminder can make a difference. That was all we ever meant to encourage. We ourselves use the glasses and plates every day to help us take our own advice. We know this is serious business. We also believe a touch of humor can, for some, be just the right touch. So, Lauren, I looked into this company a little bit more, and these plates are an outlier. This is their whole brand. They are meant to encourage particular portion sizes for drinks, including alcoholic drinks and food. Um, So they also make wine glasses that have two different lines. The lower line on the glass reads naughty, and the higher one reads nice. (laughs) They have another one where the lower glass on the wine reads classy and the higher one reads sassy. They have pasta plates that read al dente for the smaller portion and al dente for the bigger portion. (laughs) And they have another plate that reads manicotti for the smaller section and man overboard for the larger section. Do you think these are harmful messages that they're promoting, specifically the one that Macy's pulled from its shelves, referring to mom jeans, skinny jeans, and favorite jeans. 
So I went to Olive Garden with my best friend this weekend, and I ate so much pasta that I wish I had these plates. <laughs> Obesity is a real problem in America, and I, I totally am sympathetic to those who struggle with eating disorders and, and feel bad about themselves because of their weight. I myself lost 65 pounds in the past year. Which, by the way, we should do an episode on how you did that. <laughs> <laughs> and it, a lot of it was portion control. And so I, I think, yes. We have to be understanding of these women who do have psychological issues and and men do have psychological issues when it comes to portion control. But it wasn't like it was this like grape size portion ring. It was a probably a normal portion of food. You know, for for meat, you're supposed to about eat about a pack of cards is uh, the size. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's fun. It's not it's it has fun colors. It's not telling you to eat nothing. So, yes, I, I do agree that. If your Macy's customers don't want to see it on the shelves, then they have every right to pull it. But I think this is kind of society just, again, taking things too far. I agree. You know, at first, (laughs) I was a little confused because the largest portion on the plate, as we said, reads mom jeans. And then skinny jeans is the smallest. And then favorite jeans is in the middle. And I have to say... Look, I'm I'm not a mom yet, but I certainly don't fit into my jeans right now over six months pregnant. But I have to say, when I think of mom jeans, I think of those old school, not stretchy jeans at all that are super, super uncomfortable that if you do eat just a little too much, they would not be comfortable versus my skinny jeans feel like jeggings, like leggings for jeggings. And I actually can eat quite a bit wearing them. So I think we need to stop taking these messages too seriously. I think we know what they meant. I certainly hope that moms weren't offended, but weight loss is something that moms in particular deal with after having children. I'm experiencing that now. You put on all this weight and then eventually you hope to be able to lose some of it, if not all of it. Um, So total another example of outrage culture. Um, These are meant to be lighthearted and funny And now everyone just needs to be offended. And I I say that being sensitive to people who do have eating disorders, but for anyone who has an eating disorder, do not buy these plates. You need to be eating bigger portions. These plates are for certain audiences. And look, it's a free market. Nobody has to buy these particular plates. And there's even a middle ground that says your favorite pair of jeans in the middle. So you you don't have to eat the giant portion and you don't have to eat the tiny portion. You can eat the medium portion. Yeah. People just take things too far. Absolutely. Well, should we move on to talk about Ivanka's white dog? Yeah, Ivanka <laughs> literally can't do anything right, according to social justice warriors, not even by her daughter, a dog. Kelsey, you actually covered this story yesterday morning in Bright. You wrote, why are they calling her a racist? Because the dog is white. Claude Taylor, who worked on the 1992 and 1996 Bill Clinton presidential campaign, and as White House volunteer director tweeted, The dog will fit right in. Hashtag it's white enough. Actress Yvette Nicole Brown, who is black, tweeted, good thing it's a white dog. Your dad hates the blacks. (laughs) Wow. I I just it's a dog. Dogs come in all colors. They come in brown. They come in black. They come with spots. She just wanted to do a nice thing for her daughter. I hate when people politicize dogs and babies and sports and anything that's not meant to be political and this one is really frustrating because they're bringing the serious topic of race and racism into a conversation about an adorable little puppy that 
Ivanka and her husband bought for their daughter for her eighth birthday. I think this has the effect of, you know, watering down what should be serious conversations when we bring up race. But now when conservatives see Ivanka Trump being accused of racism because she bought a white dog, they're maybe not going to take you too seriously when you bring forth any legitimate, you know, concerns regarding race on that front. So I I think they're making a huge mistake. Okay, so for our next topic, if you have kids in the car, any kids in earshot, maybe skip it. We're going to talk about (laughs) just a little bit graphic, I guess would be a good way to put it. And Kelsey... This is a topic I don't think we I'd ever imagine we'd even have to discuss. I know. I'm I'm like holding my breath, bracing myself for how we're going to get through this segment. <laughs> uh, oh, you want me to do it? Yeah, I no, mean, this is all you, Lauren. Okay. You you go for it. <laughs> so a Canadian transgender woman is being denied the service to have his scrotum wax. Sixteen different complaints have been filed, according to a national review, against those beauticians that have refused to perform the service. This week, British Columbia's Human Rights Tribunal, the CHRC, a self-described, quote, quasi-judicial body created by the B.C. Human Rights Code, end quote, held hearings on whether or not female beauticians should be forced to handle male genitalia. Now, it's important to note that the individual bringing forth these complaints, who was previously known as Jonathan, but now goes by Jessica, is, you know, still has male body parts. He has not undergone sex reassignment surgery, despite identifying as a female. This is quite common. That's a very serious surgery. So, you know, this is this is pretty normal in the world of um, transgender individuals. So according to the article, the beauticians have expressed a variety of reasons for not wanting to wax his genitals, such as religion or uh, feeling underqualified, because maybe that's something they had never done before. Jessica explained on Twitter, this is this is what Jessica said. This is not about waxing. This is about businesses and individuals using their religion and culture to refuse service to protected groups because they don't agree with it or the person and use that to illegally discriminate contrary to the BC Human Rights Code and the CHRC, BC, British Columbia. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where to start. On one hand, I'm like, I can't believe we're talking about this. On the other hand... I'm like, of course we're talking about this. This is naturally where this conversation was going. And if conservatives had suggested that this is what we would be talking about a year ago, we would be accused of fear mongering. And look, look where we are. Yeah. And I don't it's not a human right to have your body wax. I don't understand how this is. (laughs) He's suing. Kelsey, I don't think we're the only people to feel this way. Even some who lean left are feeling the same way. Actor Ricky Gervais Again, he's British. He's not known for being any conservative stonewart. He tweeted out, how do we get to the point where women are having to fight for the right to choose whether they wax some big old hairy bleep? You know what? (laughs) Or not. (laughs) Or not. It is not a human right to have your meat and two veg polished. (laughs) Again, I can't believe that we're at a point in history where we have to talk about this, but... I I don't have words. We have an article up on the Daily Signal right now talking about how if the Equality Act moves forward, this could happen here in the United States. 
we've talked about this on the podcast before, how the Equality Act could force women's shelters, for example, to take in biological men who identify as women. Um, It could have a huge effect on all sorts of businesses, hospitals as well. And so, again, it's only natural for this conversation to lead to these other sorts of spaces, such as uh, beauty salons, where, I mean, you're, you're literally forcing women, often many of them are young, who go into the beauty industry to not only be exposed to male genitals, but... They have to touch them. Yes. Interact with them in some way. And, and most of the time, it's, it's insane. You're in a small, enclosed space. And if you don't want to do it, you're accused of being transphobic and a bigot. And the, the women's genitalia and men's genitalia are different. Kelsey, you brought this up earlier. You can't wax things the same way. You have to... I, I don't I have experience <laughs> waxing, but like you... you there's just safety issues, and yeah, it's just crazy to me. Just buy a razor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, this is where we are, people. Uh, we apologize for the graphic segment, but it's important to realize that this is not just where this conversation is going. This is where it is. Yeah. So on a more family-friendly note, we're going to take a break, <laughs> but don't go too far. When we return, Kelsey sat down with Rachel Gresler who we talk a lot about boss ladies on the podcast. Rachel Gresler might be the queen of all the boss ladies. She has six kids at home. She's still a amazing heritage research fellow. And her and Kelsey kind of break down whether or not there's a case for conservative paid family leave. So stay tuned. Okay, but before we get into the interview, I want to tell you about one of my favorite podcasts. Heritage Explains is a weekly podcast done by our friends Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher. And every week they pick an issue that's very topical and they break it down in a way that's really easy to understand and very entertaining. They use music. They use clips. They have some really awesome experts that come on. So I really suggest that you take the time, you subscribe, you listen. You'll be better at parties. You'll know what to talk to people about. You'll seem smarter to your friends. There's no reason not to do it. Look it up. iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast, Heritage Explains. So earlier this week, Rachel Gresler, who is a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, who specializes in economics, budget, and entitlements, participated in a debate over the question of whether there's a conservative case for paid family leave. This question has divided the conservative movement, with some, including Senator Mike Lee, arguing yes and proposing a plan to do just that. Others, such as Rachel, have argued no, the federal government has no role in providing new parents with this benefit. I attended this debate, hosted by the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where I had the opportunity to hear both sides make their case. And for this interview, I decided the best way to format it is for me to lay out the best pro-family leave arguments and give Rachel the opportunity to respond. And trust me, as someone who is now more than six months pregnant and thinking through my own options for maternity leave, I am not going easy on her. (laughs) And that said, fun fact about Rachel, she is a working mom with six children under the age of 10 of her own. So while she is one of the leading policy experts in this space, she can also speak about this issue from lots of experience. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kelsey. So let's get to it. 
Starting broad, conservatives are pro-life and pro-family. Studies have found that some 20% of women drop out of the workforce after having their first child, and that many women actually choose abortion because they feel they would have no option but to return to work right after having a child. Studies have also found that putting infants into daycare is not good for their early development because children physically need their mothers at these young ages. So as conservatives, why wouldn't we want government policies that could reduce abortions and enable working mothers to thrive in the economy? Thanks, Kelsey. Well, I want to start out by first saying, as conservatives, we absolutely do support um, paid family leave. We want mothers to be able to stay home with their children. We want workers to be able to take leave for their own medical reasons or to care for a family member. What we don't support is a one-size-fits-all government program that tells workers the type of leave they can take and when they can take it. We want to be about choices and opportunities, and I think that all conservatives agree on that. But when you talk about the type of federal program that's being proposed both by conservatives and by liberals, what we're looking at is a federal intervention that actually gives people fewer choices. And we're talking about subsidizing one choice that a woman makes versus another, one woman who decides to stay home with her children versus one woman who decides to work. Both of these can be the right choice for that individual, but a one-size-fits-all government program can't meet those unique choices that we want people to be able to make. And when it gets to the issue of abortion, I haven't seen any statistics that link this. I kind of see the people that argue for that to clamoring to results that they're trying to find a link could be there, but it's really not. When you look at abortion, that's a life-altering decision. That's a really significant choice. Many women will tell you one of the biggest ones they've made and maybe the most regrettable one that they've made in their life. I don't see how having a six- or 12-week benefit from the government available to those women would make a difference in them saying, I'm going to have this child and raise them for 18 years versus not have them. I think we need to talk more comprehensively about ways that we can support women who are facing that choice, such as what is the cost of childcare? What are the job opportunities that will make that woman feel like she can support a child instead? Yeah, I think that's a really important way to open this conversation because since you are one of the leading voices advocating against a government-mandated paid paternity or maternity leave policy, a lot of people conclude that you're against paid paternity leave, but that's not the case? No, I'm absolutely not against paid family leave, and I've taken plenty of paid family leave myself, and I think that it's something that should be available, and I celebrate the fact that we've seen a huge increase in private employers that are giving their employees this option and providing it as a benefit. And we've seen that happen because workers want it. And employers want to be able to attract good workers. And in a thriving economy like we have now, they have to be competitive and they have to offer policies like that. And providing paid family leave is a way to get a good worker on board and it's a way to keep them there. If you don't provide a policy, you're more likely to have a worker not come back after having a child or after having some medical leave. And there's significant costs to that. So there's already the free market that's working in favor of workers here for employers to provide those policies. It's now the case that the top 20 employers in the U.S. now have paid family leave policies. That wasn't always the case. And we're talking about lower income um, jobs, companies like Walmart, Target, Chipotle, Lowe's, Starbucks. All these companies are coming out and announcing new policies because it's what workers want. And so instead of stepping in now when we've seen this tremendous growth, this is the ideal time to wait and see how many more private employers we can get to offer these policies instead of pulling them out from under workers' feet. 
So a lack of paid family leave is hurting the most vulnerable among us, say the proponents of government-mandated paid family leave. These are single and low-income mothers. And while as conservatives we are pro-family, we are also pro-small and medium businesses, which are typically the ones who can't afford to provide employee-sponsored paid family leave policies. So as conservatives, wouldn't we want to support some sort of social safety net for these workers who are falling through the cracks without punishing small and medium businesses by forcing them to pay for something that they can't afford. Exactly. And I'm glad you brought that point up because we are trying to target a smaller group of people who don't have access to leave now. It's lower income workers and it's those who work for the small and medium sized businesses. So let's consider what would happen if we implemented a national paid family leave policy today. The larger employers already pay for these policies. So they actually would not be impacted. Even if we tax them directly, they're going to pay those taxes and they're going to revoke their policies that they're already providing. So it's cost neutral for them. Maybe it even saves them some money because the federal policy might be less generous than what they're already providing to their workers. And we've seen companies like Deloitte testify that if they're in a state that has a state-based program, they make their workers first use that state program And then they might top them off with benefits. But they're taking the entirety of what can be provided to them by federal taxpayers first. The people it really costs are those small or medium businesses that don't currently have a plan because they pay for that whole tax. And when we've seen in European countries that have big programs, is that they're actually regressive. They end up taxing smaller and medium income earners more so than higher income earners who are more likely to use the program. So you end up hurting the people that you're trying to help, lower income earners and small and medium businesses who just haven't had enough time yet to develop the resources to establish a paid family leave policy. So what is your solution for a new mom working minimum wage who's employed at a smaller, medium sized business that doesn't offer any sort of paid family leave? We know that some low income women actually return to work as early as two weeks after giving birth. Yes, so I, there actually is a proposal out there already. Senator Lee has proposed the Working Families Flexibility Act, and this is particularly beneficial to lower-income workers. What it does is it says if you're an hourly worker and you qualify for overtime, then you can choose whether you would like to work those overtime hours and receive pay or whether you'd rather receive paid time off. And so somebody who works even just two hours extra per week per year and receives overtime, they could accumulate four weeks of paid leave every year. Ironically, this is something that's prohibited right now in the private sector. Public sector workers have that choice. They can choose comp time or they can choose overtime pay. But for some reason, the government doesn't allow private sector workers to make that choice, even if their employer wants to offer it. Proponents of federally funded paid family leave Also, we'll argue that Americans are already paying for paid leave via public assistance and that some studies have actually found that women use less public assistance when they have access to a paid family leave plan. So as conservatives, wouldn't we want to support a plan that encourages women to rely less on government money? Yes, we want people to be self-sufficient and independent and be able to provide for themselves, of course. But what we're talking about here is a tiny reduction in the amount of welfare assistance that one person might make in exchange for a massive new federal entitlement. So maybe we reduce welfare spending by a million dollars, but then we implement a new 
public program that costs tens of billions of dollars per year. I mean, when we walk down the road of what a federal policy starts out as and what it eventually ends as, you end up with a program that's going to cost workers hundreds, if not thousands of dollars per year. And so is it worth it if we can get a few women taking less in welfare and yet every single worker in the economy is paying hundreds or thousands of dollars more per year? That's a lot more government spending. Let's break down what one of these proposals by Republican senators, Joni Ernst of Iowa and Mike Lee of Utah, have already introduced. It's called the Child Rearing and Development Leave Empowerment Act, or CRADLE. And it's a plan that would let parents take one to three months off from work to care for a newborn or adoptive child by tapping into their Social Security benefits early. In exchange, people could delay retirement benefits and those benefit levels would be determined by using the same formula that they used to determine Social Security disability benefits. For example, someone making around $50,000 a year would get at least $1,800 a month. Someone making the poverty level of $16,910 would get $960 a month. The argument in favor of this plan is that it doesn't penalize stay-at-home mothers. It provides women, working or non-working, with more choice. And there's also the argument that, hey, I'm paying into Social Security right now. That's my money. Why shouldn't I have the right to take it out early to fund my own paid family leave if that is something that I value? So why wouldn't conservatives support giving women more choice? There are two fundamental flaws with this proposal to use Social Security. The first is that it violates the purpose of Social Security and why we established it. And the second is that we've only seen Social Security to be an ever-expanding federal program. And there's zero confidence that Congress would ever keep this a truly cost-neutral program. And instead, I think we would see it evolve over time. We have paid into Social Security, and we are told that there will be something there for us when we retire. But the reality is every dollar you and I pay in today is going immediately out the door to pay current retirees' benefits. We don't own that money. It's not in a lockbox. And Congress actually has the ability to take it away entirely tomorrow if they wanted. The Supreme Court has ruled we have no claim to our Social Security benefits. So it's not our money. And by telling people that it is their money, it only makes them more enamored with this big federal entitlement program and makes it all the more difficult to reform it going forward in a way that would make it so that the benefits are actually there, the retirement benefits are there for the people that we've told them they would be there for. I think that we need to look at this um, proposal in terms of what Social Security is. It's not a social piggy bank, and you can just see how it would expand over time. If we can use it for paid family leave, why not also allow people to take a loan to purchase a car, to pay off their mortgage, their student loans? And why would we want to make people have to delay their retirement? We could waive that requirement later, and it would actually end up costing a lot of money. The benefit level might not be high enough, so Congress would say, well, we need a higher benefit level. We need it to cover not just paid maternity leave, because that's actually only about one of every five leaves that's taken in the U.S., but we want it to cover all paid family leave. And then you can just see how this program expands over time, and what started out as something that was small and cost nothing ends up costing hundreds or thousands of dollars for every worker per year. But if we don't go with the Social Security plan, it's possible that we'll get something far worse, more expansive, and more expensive. I mean, just wait until someone like 
AOC occupies the Oval Office. <laughs> Not to scare anyone. But there is that argument that if we don't go with this proposal to use Social Security benefits, we will get something far more massive that would be far more damaging to the economy. And those same people will also argue that if the Europeans can provide these types of benefits, why can't we here in the most prosperous country in the world? So what happens if we don't go with the Social Security proposal? I think what happens is we continue to see more and more employers offer their own plans and you see workers who are benefiting from those. And it's the best way to get your own policy is through the employer directly. And so we see more growth in that. And then there's less need to have a federal program going forward. Also, if we do go with Social Security because we're trying to avoid a massive new federal program, I actually think that should be the left's game plan. What program would be better to see it expand over time than Social Security? Social Security started out as a 2% payroll tax. It's now 12.4%, and Democrats have a bill that they're debating this week that would raise it to 15%. You can see how easily we would just continue to have that program grow and expand over time, providing higher benefits, higher taxes to finance it. And so I think the best path forward is to not take any of these proposals like Social Security, not the Democrats' Family Act, but just wait until the private sector expands on their own and gives policies to people that are actually more beneficial than a one-size-fits-all government program. What about the European countries? Why can they do it and we can't? They can do it, but they're taxed sufficiently for it. Um, We've had a heritage report out here recently that shows that taxes in Europe are extremely high. I mean, the average person actually faces like a 50 percent marginal tax rate. Um, So if you want the government to be in control of more of your life decisions and you want to have to turn to them for all these choices you make, like staying at home after having a child, that's fine. But you will pay for it and you'll have fewer choices and lower incomes as a result. So, Rachel, if you don't support a government-paid family leave plan, what do you support to help working women? Or are you just (laughs) anti-women as a a working mom of six? (laughs) I support a whole number of policies. I mean, I mentioned the Working Families Flexibility Act. That's something that specifically would help lower-income women. I would love to see us have universal savings accounts that we could use for all types of decisions that we make, whether it's to stay home with a child, to save for college, to save for retirement. Um, And even without those, let's let workers tap their 401k or their IRA early so that they can take that money to use it for paid family leave. And let's lower taxes. We saw that happened when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was in enacted and employers responded with new paid family leave policies. When we've reduced regulations, it frees up resources so that employers can offer new plans. So I actually support the government getting out of the way and letting workers and employers um, be able to interact with one another and develop plans that work best for them instead of having the government tell them what plans work. Well, on this show, we love getting to know our guests a little better, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are wondering how you have balanced being a mom of six uh, with your full-time job. Do you have any advice for either other mothers out there or other moms-to-be like myself? I do, and my advice comes from my experience over, you know, having six children over the last 10 years and just seeing how valuable it's been for me to be able to work directly with my employer and talk about what works for me, what needs I have, 
how I can continue to grow in my career, but also be there for my children. And that's one of the reasons that I have been advocating so strongly against a federal program. I just don't see how it would end up working for individuals and for employers. You're taking away the ability of me um, to be able to talk to my boss and to say, here's what works for me. I would like to be flexible this maternity leave. I'd like to be gone for four months, but I'm going to work some while I'm gone. Um, When the government's in control, they are basically coming in and saying, we determine whether or not this leave is a viable one. We determine how much you're paid. And your employer can't ask you questions. They can't ask you to keep doing things. And I think the most minimally um, costly policy for women is one that allows them to make the choices that work best for them. And you can only have that if they're able to interact with their employers. And I imagine the type of birth you have could affect how much time you want or medically need off. Um, And then I also wonder if it gets easier or more difficult with more children. On one hand, you know, I think with my first, that's when I'm really going to need to learn the ropes and I'm going to need a decent amount of time to figure out what I'm doing and how to balance this whole new life. Then I also think, how the heck do you do that with six? (laughs) Yeah, and it's... um you know, you always are able to handle whatever you have at the time. And so now for me, having six doesn't seem any harder than having one. But each of those leaves has been different. And as you said, of course, the first time I felt like I needed that full 12 weeks, absolutely. And I just wanted to be home and I didn't have that much interaction with work. But with subsequent children, you know, it made it easier. I would start having phone calls, emails, just doing things, being able to do it on my own time as I made those choices. And that's what I've liked is being able to stay connected in some capacity so that I don't walk back in the door not knowing what's been going on over that time period. But by being there for my employer and being willing to do some of these things, I have in turn benefited from them being flexible with me and not just during that 12-week period, but over the entirety of um, my work, them allowing me, whether it's to work at home or to take time off for a medical appointment, um, just trusting that. I will get the work done. That's been the best um, experience for me and something that I've seen that comes from individual interactions as opposed to any intervention. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for your work on this issue, and thank you for being willing to share some of your personal experience with this type of policy debate that we are having today. Thanks, Kelsey. Uh, Where can people follow more of your work if they want to read more about this issue? Heritage.org. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle? Looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters? The Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day, plus interviews with lawmakers, authors, Heritage Foundation experts, and more on the most important policy debates in America today. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. Welcome back. We are now excited to crown our problematic woman of the week, someone that you might have not ever heard of, but it means a lot to us here on Problematic Women. She helps us every day with scripts, with editing the podcast. Our intern, Samantha Rank. Samantha is a rising senior, correct, at Penn State University. And we're crowning her Problematic Woman of the Week because she has created and released her own podcast called Millennial Myths. So, Sam, can you tell us a little bit about that? When I first got to the Heritage Foundation for my internship as part of the Young Leaders Program, it's 12 weeks that you're really just thrown into your job. And I knew coming in that I wanted to try to help 
the conservative movement, especially with its reach to younger generations, millennials and Gen Zs. And being that I am a broadcast journalism major, I knew I could use my voice to try to make that difference and try to spread awareness about different policy issues like socialism and the Electoral College. And I worked very closely with Lauren and other people throughout the office to create this podcast, Millennial Myths. Each week I include men on the street interviews, expert interviews, personal stories to try and debunk some of the most popular myths that millennials and younger generations believe. I find it interesting that you guys are identifying as millennials, but technically, aren't you Gen Z? Yes, technically, I'm a Gen Z. But the millennial thing is just stuck because it's such a there's culturally so much changed under the millennial generation that I think our generation and your generation are very similar, which is why I think the title totally works and still applies to all you guys. But I do think it's interesting that they're identifying with our label. <laughs> and Sam's, she, Sam's right on the edge. She and, can, and she given, can how, well, given how problematic our label is, too, because <laughs> we all know millennials have a lot of issues. And Gen Z myth just doesn't roll off the tongue as well. Yeah, I was going to no. say that the title was definitely, you know, it, it flowed them and the M. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're super excited about it. And, you know, I, I think it's something that conservatives all know that we struggle with. And um, I feel like all of us come into this world as young conservatives hoping to be able to reach younger generations and we can see what those older than us aren't doing and complain about it but it's nice to see someone like you actually do something about it so we're super excited that you started this podcast and while we have you on we want to know a little more insight into what it's like these days being a conservative on college campus and what type of resources are helpful for you to have to stand your ground it's definitely interesting to be alone conservative sometimes it feels like (laughs) despite how big Penn State's campus is and more specifically I was interning in Washington DC in the fall and I was here through a program that Penn State offers for the fall and the summer and I was the only conservative leaning there's probably 15 people and of course through the whole Brett Kavanaugh craziness it was just me against the world basically (laughs) and we only had classes one day a week but it still felt like the most dreaded day. I mean, I loved my professors, don't get me wrong, but some of my classmates were a lot to handle. And actually, when I moved out, my roommate, I'm assuming it was her because who else could have gone into my room, actually placed a Believe All Survivors poster on my pillow. And she had moved out the day before. So when I came home from work that day, I was working at the Daily Caller and she was gone and that was just there that was the last thing that i had to remember her by and i That's think it's so passive aggressive it was just one of those things and especially coming into this internship that it made me more determined to want to get the conservative message out there because if you're placing things on people's pillows where they put their heads to sleep at night if you're being that petty and you can't even have a conversation with someone about your differences you know, that's not a healthy and I don't think that does anything for society. I mean, we could just, <laughs> we could have a whole nother episode yeah. <laughs> about the assumption of that you don't believe survivors because mm-hmm. you support Brett Kavanaugh. It's just, exactly. Yeah. So when you find the group of conservatives on campus, you kind of tend to stick together. But that doesn't mean that you aren't open to other people's ideas, which I think doesn't always happen with the left. Yeah. And I, I love hearing, you know, that you are taking the higher ground and willing to engage in tough conversations with 
with students who disagree with you, because that's something I, I feel strongly about conservatives, that we're willing to have conversations and, and debate anyone. And it's really the other side that just wants to shout us down, pretend we don't exist and you know, not engage in any sort of productive conversation. That's really why we created this podcast, um, because <laughs> we wanted to say, hey, conservative women do exist. So thank you for standing up for your beliefs on college campus and for all you're doing here during this internship. Rockstar. So Sam, if anyone wants to listen to your podcast, where can they find it? They can find it on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, the Heritage Foundation's YouTube page, and Anywhere else you can find your podcasts. Awesome. Well, thanks for all that you do, Sam. And that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please think about telling a friend about this podcast. We could use your help in spreading the word that we do, in fact, exist. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. This podcast is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans. Associate producer, Samantha Rank. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.